Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked. Game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco Cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked. Your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. A warmer, friendly low. Welcome to Lovey Las Vegas for Coast to Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Hoops Spears. And we've got a great podcast for you. So in the second segment, we are going to be joined by one of our good friends over there at Heat Check CBB, Brian Rolfe. He does a great job with the Open Rolfe podcast. I have the same as spelled R-A-U-F. You're able to find that podcast wherever you get your podcast. He is based out there in the state of North Carolina. So that means that we're going to be talking a lot about the Big Ten. Oh, wait, never mind. We don't have any Big Ten teams that are remaining this college basketball season in any of these tournaments. So we're going to be talking about how Duke and North Carolina have gotten to this point, just how the ACC in general has been able to take off here in the month of March as well, just some of those idiosyncrasies. We are also noticing that the transfer portal is getting heated. We're both going to be giving our thoughts about Andre Curbelo entering into the transfer portal, what could be good slash bad for him, and then we're going to be evaluating these final four matchups as well. So a little bit of a smorgasbord of a little bit of everything college basketball with Brian in the second segment. Then in the final segment, I'm going to give you guys about 15 or so minutes with regards to updates that we've seen with guys in the transfer portal. A few guys have decided where they're going to be going. A lot of these guys wound up entering their name. A few guys wound up putting their name into the hat for the NBA draft as well. We wound up seeing a coaching hire with SMU. So we're going to be recapping those and then going to give you guys picks and analysis on both games on the betting board for this college basketball Tuesday as we had some bank shots first things first. Always do love to be able to answer your Twitter questions on this podcast and we got one or two ways we offer those in. First one is my Twitter timeline at GUnit underscore 81. Keep in mind letters EM. They mean does not matter so as per usual please just send these into the timeline and the other way is find an Apple Podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars it is very much appreciated and then from there you're able to find whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast via that five star review. I know that a lot of you guys ask me if this podcast continues on during the offseason. Answer is absolutely yes, but I will not be speculating with regards to where some of these guys are going to be going until we wind up getting them because when it comes to these offseason moves with regards to coaching searches, when it comes to the transfer portal, there's no money in projecting, oh, I think Player X is going to be going to Team X or anything like that. There are those that wind up doing their crystal ball projections when it comes to recruiting. There are those that they speculate with regards to transfers. I'm only going to be breaking down what we wind up actually getting. Like, for instance, Andre Corbello enters into the transfer portal. I don't care who he's taking a look at. I'm going to evaluate the team that winds up getting Andre Corbello when they wind up actually getting him and how good of a fit it is when he actually winds up going there. It's one of these cases of which it's just a situation which, sure, you could maybe get a little bit of value with regards to the futures market in some cases, but there are a lot of people that were like, oh boy, I got a lot of value on Gonzaga because I took them preseason going into the NCAA tournament. How did that work out for you? There's really not a lot that 
has value. And when it comes to game-by-game game betting, which is what I focus on, we aren't going to be doing much game-by-game game betting until November, aside from, obviously, the Final Four in the NIT, the Final Four in the actual NCAA tournament as well. And those guys have not entered into the transfer portal yet, so... I just like to take my time when it comes to evaluating these teams. We've got 358 of them, and I will just continue to reiterate this. It's a marathon, not a sprint when it comes to breaking down these teams. I'm going to be continuing this podcast, as I mentioned, every single day, which means that I'm going to be taking a look at these teams when you do wind up having addition slash subtractions that do wind up getting confirmed. We will judge these teams on their own merit, and what we actually wind up getting is how they are going to be evaluated during the season. And now, when you wind up getting injuries, when you wind up having guys that maybe you thought were going to get a lot of minutes that don't, you make adjustments from there. But I'm not going to make a bunch of just rash predictions as to like, oh, Player X entered in the transfer portal. I think he goes here and he winds up putting up 20 points per game. There's just flat out no value in that. So we are only going to be evaluating what we actually wind up getting with regards to the offseason. So do want to just point that out and want to point out the two games that we wound up getting in college basketball on Monday as now the basketball classic final has been set. So let's take a look at how these two teams wound up getting here and how we wound up getting a pair of unders on Monday as well. A game from yesterday is Greg buzzing about. Here is the rowdy recap. Well, we gave out Southern Utah with the DK Nation pick and Southern Utah, they were just not up to the task when it comes to them taking on Fresno State as Fresno State had a very easy time in this one as Fresno State didn't allow Southern Utah to be able to get to 50, 67 to 48 the final. Orlando Robinson had himself a day and this guy is going to be tremendous in the NBA. 20 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists, 3 steals. He buried a pair of threes. Fresno State, 11 of 21 from 3 point range. Southern Utah, they actually didn't do a bad job on the glass. They actually played even up on the glass. They got 12 offensive rebounds to Fresno State's 4. Problem is, they just couldn't throw it in in this day. 19 of 61 from the floor, 4 of 20 from 3 point range. A Fresno State team that is in the top 25 in all of college basketball in terms of points a lot on a per possession basis. They certainly were able to do their part as Southern Utah did not wind up having a single player get into double figures. So, very impressive showing there. And then with Coastal Carolina versus South Alabama, if you, like me, wound up taking South Alabama. This was a brutal beat as they were up three points with 10 seconds remaining. Vince Cole buries a three that forces the game to overtime. Vince Cole, by the way, goes 5 of 18 from the floor, 4 of 12 from three for 16 points. He buried that one at just the right time. And then South Alabama is up two points with about 25 seconds to go. All they need to do is get the ball past half court to get fouled and pretty much soak the game away. They wind up getting called for a 10 second violation. From there, you wind up having a late three thrown up by Costa Carolina. It winds up going. Costa Carolina gets the job done 69-68. to If you took the under, it still wound up hitting, by the way. So you were able to get there. So if you wind up taking the under, it did not wind up getting washed away by overtime, which that shows you the type of defense that both of these teams are playing in Costa Carolina. Outside the top two are with regards to possessions per game, but for the Chanticleers, 9-24 from three-point range. Isam Mustafa surprisingly came in off the bench in this one, but was still very solid. 12.7 boards for assists for the main big man for Coastal Carolina and the Chanticleers wound up getting 8 points, 10 rebounds, and 3 assists out of Abrima Deba. The 15 turnovers, a little bit costly, but with that said, South Alabama, they were down J.J. Chandler, Charles Manning, really their top two scorers for this team, so it's all about Javon Franklin in this game. 17 points, 12 rebounds. I think that might have been part of why Coastal Carolina wound up going a little bit more guard-heavy at the beginning of the game because South Alabama, well, a lot of their starting guards, they were not in the fold, so they had to go a little bit bigger in this game, and you can tell that South Alabama 
Alabama had a little bit of a tough time around the perimeter. They did wind up having 14 turnovers in this game, though. Did have to like what you wound up seeing out of Tyrell Jones, a little bit of a junior for the South Alabama team that wanted coming in from Auburn. He did wind up having himself seven assists to four turnovers in this game. He'll probably be a player of the future for South Alabama. He did wind up having one team that was a very slight underdog slash a pick em, depending on where you look in Coast Carolina get the job done. Wound up having one favorite in Fresno State be able to get it done. And if you just take a look at college basketball over the last seven days. So this is going to be taking the basketball classic. This is also going to be taking the NIT and obviously what we wind up seeing in the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8 with regards to college basketball. So sort of melding all these postseason tournaments together. We've been noticing a big giant under clip right now. Six overs to 18 unders with the NCAA tournament having just one out of their last 12 games wind up going over the total. So even if you take the NCAA tournament out of the fold, between the NIT, CIT, all these lesser tournaments, five overs to seven unders. So that tells you where we're at with regards to that end. Overall, underdogs 13 and 11 against the spread the last seven days in college basketball across all these tournaments. So that's what we've been seeing recently here in college basketball. And coming up next, what we are seeing in college basketball, lots of guys entering into the transfer portal. We're going to be hitting upon that with Brian Rolfe of HXCBB. We're also going to be taking a look at these two final four games, how the ACC has really been able to take off this month as well in college basketball. And that's up next right here on Coast to Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Hughes-Pearson, now part of the Beeson Family Podcast. Las Vegas for Ghost Ghost Hoops with myself, Greg Hoops Peterson, now part of the Beeson family podcast, and it is great to be joined by our guests as the gentlemen over there at Heath Check CBB. They do absolutely amazing work tracking college basketball all season long. It's not just a case in which in season these guys are dialed in and then in the offseason they're like eating Cheetos or anything like that. Well, they might be eating Cheetos while they evaluate this, but they are still hard at work doing an absolutely amazing job of taking a look at everything in the transfer portal, these coaching moves, projecting forward to the next season. And I'm sure that Brian Ralph, who is joining me right now, able to follow him on Twitter at brauf 33 last name is spelled R-A-U-F, and then the number 33 is going to be doing a lot of that. He has been doing amazing work all season long with each XCBB, and he's out there in the great state of North Carolina where, well, we've seen some good basketball from that state in recent weeks. So, Brian, it's great to have you aboard. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I will be eating a lot of Cheetos this offseason as well, hey. uh, but we'll be keeping up with basketball too. Absolutely. You can do both. That's the beauty of it. You're able to eat Cheetos while being able to do a great job of watching all these games, being able to evaluate college basketball, just as long as it's not solely the Cheeto eating and not anything else. And Brian, <laughs> I just mentioned it. You are out there in the state of North Carolina and a lot of guys that probably didn't wind up eating a lot of Cheetos to prepare for the NCAA tournament was North Carolina and Duke as they find them both in the final four. It's a case in which I think that the call for a one-bid ACC for the NCAA tournament was a little bit extreme, but I don't think anyone could have seen three teams from the ACC making the Elite Eight and both Duke and North Carolina making the final four. I think Duke, reasonable case there. North Carolina, a few weeks ago, they lost a pit. Certainly not. What have you seen just... Out of the ACC in general, and especially these two teams that have allowed them to be able to get to this spot. Yeah, I mean, you look at the ACC, a couple teams that are peaking at the right time. Slow starts of the season are really derailed. I think a lot of these teams will point to UNC 
in Miami, especially, you know, Miami, November, December, had a couple of bad losses, and most notable one, they lost to Alabama by 30. They did not look the part at all, turned a corner and started playing better as the season went on, had a win over Duke in Cameron, that was notable, but outside of that, there wasn't anything that you could point to to say, oh yeah, that team has absolutely turned a corner and is Elite Eight caliber. They hadn't done that. North Carolina, famously, did not have a quad one win until the very end of February. Right. And then they go into Duke, beat Duke at Cameron and Coach K's last game there. And that seemed to completely change the tide of their season. You know, they got blown out by Kentucky as well in the non-conference, blown out by Tennessee. The ACC's reputation was warranted because of how poor they played in the non-conference. Like it's not just something the media at large pulled out of a hat and decided was the narrative this year. They earned that. At the same time, they peaked at the right time. You, you play the game to win championships and national championships and to be playing your best basketball in March. Miami did that. Duke and North Carolina have certainly done that as well. And North Carolina has played with a energy and a urgency, a decisiveness that was not there the first four months of the season. And now that, that that's happened, we've seen the results. Yeah, it's been really fascinating to take a look at these ACC schools, especially North Carolina, and how they've been able to take off. And I think that what we wound up seeing this past weekend really speaks to how good of a job Hubert Davis is doing in comparison to other gentlemen, because North Carolina and Purdue, I don't think are entirely dissimilar. You've got a pair of teams that they struggled on defense this year. Both of these teams relatively solid with regards to shooting the three. Purdue wound up waning a little bit more towards the back half of the season. North Carolina was not necessarily at the point that Purdue was at any point in the season with regards to the three-point shooting, but both teams are relatively solid. But you saw with North Carolina, Armando Baycott in that Elite Eight game against St. Peter's, didn't take them lightly, got every single rebound humanly possible. Meanwhile, giant of the earth, Zach Eady, winds up playing fewer than 20 minutes in that game. And I think that it really shows that Hubert Davis has done an amazing job with North Carolina. And that North Carolina has improved on defense. By no means are they Texas Tech or anything like that, but defense is looking a little bit better. Meanwhile, Matt Painter had a team that was absolutely amazing on offense, liability on defense, never got them to play better defense. And quite frankly, he just got badly outcoached by Shaheen Holloway in that game against St. Peter's. He really did. And the one thing about Matt Painter that drives me nuts and has the last two years, he's a really, really good coach. He recruits big. He recruits to have a bigger team, which is fine. That's a strategy and it's worked for them. But then play that way. Recruit Trevion Williams and Zach Eady. You are doing so logically to play through the big men and play big. You mentioned Zach Eady played less than 20 minutes in that game. Matt Painter keeps deciding he should go small because he can't defend these teams. So either recruit smaller so you can play that way or play to your roster. He doesn't do that and has not done that. And to me, this year in particular, that's what sunk them is that he didn't play to his roster strength. Yep, and North Carolina, they utilized Bay Coat in that game. He did an absolutely amazing job down low in St. Peter's, our darlings of the NCAA tournament. I mean, absolutely amazing run, but they are now gone, and now we've got the Blue Bloods in the final four. As we do a Brian Roth joining me on the podcast, and Brian, we're going to dive into the two final four matchups that we're going to be getting in a minute, but we've seen a lot of movement with regards to the transfer portal, and we'll just hit on a few of these here as I think the biggest name that wound up entering not just Monday, but I would say the entirety of the offseason is Andre Corbello because it feels like everyone that's not attached to Illinois basketball has the same opinion that I did that Illinois was worse off whenever Andre Corbello was out there on the floor. I personally think that this is great for all parties. Andre Corbello has a low floor, but a very high ceiling. 
great on defense right now. Offense needs some work. I think that he really needs a new system to cut down on the bad turnovers, the bad shot making, but he can instantly come in, give you a lot of defense. If you wind up getting the right system for him, he can really flourish. I'm not sure what your thoughts are, but I think that Andre Corbello, if he winds up landing in the right spot, he could be tremendous next year. If he winds up landing in a bad spot, we could see what wind up happening with him at Illinois this year as well. Yeah, he can't be a primary scoring option. And I think a lot of the people associated with Illinois program were hoping he could become that and develop that because he showed flashes of it as a freshman. But what we saw this year, his game last year, were really accentuated, right? An elite defender, an elite passer. He's one of the handful of best uh, passers in the entire country. And I don't think there's any debating that. But outside of the paint, he's a non-shooter. And he's somebody who, sometimes worse than a non-shooter, somebody who refuses to shoot right? Because then the defense doesn't even have to respect you. Even if you shoot 25% from three, if you're not going to shoot it, the defense doesn't even have to worry about the 25%. If Cabello goes to a system where he can be, you know, the fourth or fifth option offensively and be that playmaker, be just in charge of getting open shots for others, that's where he's going to be in position to flourish. Illinois last year worked because you had Kofi and Ayodosubu, right? This year it was Kofi Coburn and Trent Frazier stepped up and Alonzo Plummer stepped up, but neither of them were consistent you're definitely my number two guy every single night options. It's tough because Andre Cabello has a bit of an alpha personality, but he needs to have those alpha offensive playmakers or offensive scorers around him so he can be that playmaker. And there's only going to be a handful of places around the country that can offer him that. Yep, I totally agree with you there. If he's allowed to be a great defensive player, be able to help dole out the offense, but at the same time, not have the offense completely run through him, not be banking on him scoring in double figures, but rather having him be able to turn, for lack of a better term, defense into offense. I think that he could be very successful and help out a good college basketball team. Him trying to be the show on offense, we wound up seeing it when he wound up playing 20-plus minutes for Illinois. They wound up having a sub-500 record. You can debate me all you want, but the numbers are the numbers. It is what it is. It did not wind up turning out well for them. So I do think that fit is going to be very key for him. And when it comes to other guys that wound up entering into the transfer portal, just the entirety of the postseason, have there been any other guys that really stand out to you? Because for me, K.J. Williams, a gentleman yep. that wound up leading Murray Satan scoring, I think that... Wherever he winds up landing, and he could wind up entering his aim into the NBA draft as well. If he winds up coming back, I think that that would be absolutely massive for who'd ever be able to get him. I take a look at someone like a Sean McNeil, a good sharpshooter at West Virginia. He entered into the portal on Monday. I'm very curious to see where he winds up going because I think that he could make some good contributions for a solid team as well. Any other names really standing out to you? Yeah, those two are certainly, I think, along with Curbillo, going to be among the, the five or ten best transfers in the entire country. But another one I'm looking at is Ben Venderplaz out of Ohio. Ohio. Yeah. Say, Iowa. A little, little tongue twister there out of Ohio. He was, I remember two years ago when they beat Virginia in the first round of the NSA tournament, he was essentially the Kevin O'Banner to Jason Preston's Max Aismas. Right. He was the guy who was picking popping, making threes from everywhere on the court and gave Virginia a ton of problems. He played that role this year as well. He's a elite stretch four, uh, I think a really good secondary offensive option. His game is somewhat similar to, to Kevin O'Banner's. And I think he, he can have that kind of impact at a power conference level. We saw O'Banner step up and be you know a double-double guy, occasional double-double guy for Texas Tech, a firmly entrenched starter on a team that made the Sweet 16 and was ranked in the top 10 for majority of the season. I think Vanderplas has that kind of potential. He'll need to go to a situation that utilizes him as a stretch four, 
doesn't make him do try and do things he's not comfortable doing. But that skill set, we're seeing it right now with the way Brady Manick is impacting North Carolina as a stretch four and how he's completely opened up their offense, particularly over the last month. Vanderplot is going to have that same kind of impact depending on where he goes if he's used the right way. I do agree with you there, and I've seen him for quite a while. As he actually used to play his high school basketball at Ripa, Wisconsin. Before I wound up moving out to Las Vegas, I actually did high school broadcast many years ago in the city of Ripa, Wisconsin. Kid has just a lot of upside, six foot eight combo player that's able to shoot three. So I'm in total agreement with you there. Ben Vanderplas is a guy that you do want to be taking note of. And obviously we're going to be taking note of these two final four games as we do have Brian Rafa of ECHXCBB joining me on the podcast. I feel like we've touched a little bit on Duke versus North Carolina, but with regards to the third matchup between these two, what are you expecting? Because both wound up winning on each other's home floor. No question, both of these teams have been playing their best basketball down the stretch, and I think that it's going to be a relative tight one. I think Duke winds up getting the job done out where I'm at in Las Vegas. We've seen a lot of lines of four and a half on this game, and mm-hmm. I would rather take four and a half with North Carolina because I think it's a close game, even though I don't think that they wind up winning it outright. I'm not sure what you wind up seeing in this game, but I think that's a close one in the end. I think that Duke just has a little bit more. And I do think that Mark Williams being the best rim protector in this game is going to be huge. But I do think that this is going to be just an absolutely tremendous matchup and one that I'm sure that the folks out there in Indianapolis, Indiana are not going to be mad at with regards to the ratings. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, I with you. I would take the points in this matchup. This game is one where I'm fully expecting someone to become a legend in the Duke UNC rivalry, just because of the stage that it's on and how close I think the game is going to be. I think there's going to be one or two plays that ultimately decide this game. You know, Duke has been playing as well as anybody in the country, if not better than anybody in the country. They enter the Final Four as, as the championship favorite. But you know, UNC did just beat them by 13 on their home court. And since then, you can argue that UNC has been playing just as well as Duke. You know, Caleb Love and R.J. Davis went from playing extremely inconsistent basketball and porous defense to playing like perhaps the best backcourt in the country, at least at least one of the best backcourts in the country. You mentioned Baycott down low. Brady Manick has basically become an automatic 20 points every time he steps on the court. The key here for me, both teams don't have much of a bench, right? They play about seven guys each. If someone gets in foul trouble, that could swing the game drastically. Like there are so many little things that could swing this game because of those narrow rotations. But I think the pretty, I think Baycock can neutralize Mark Williams somewhat. You know, Manic's three point shooting and RJ Davis's three point shooting can make up for some of Duke's offensive prowess because Duke, quite frankly, doesn't shoot the ball very well. As we all know, three points are worth more than two. So UNC can make up some ground at least that way. I'll be interested to see if Jeremy Roach and some of Duke's role players are able to continue playing at the level they've been playing at. That's been the big key for Duke pushing them to this extra tier. Right, has been Jeremy Roach, a guy who's you know been the fourth or fifth option throughout his two years in Durham, whenever he's on the court, the fourth or fifth option, giving you 10, 15, 20 points in the NSA tournament. If he keeps doing that, then I think Duke certainly has the edge. But if UNC's guards are able to outplay Duke's guards, then I think that becomes a situation where UNC certainly can cover and has a very good chance to win outright. Yep, I think that it's going to be a tremendous matchup. I'm going to be taking a look at the points. As long as we continue to have these four and a halves up with North Carolina, I don't know if they could do it outright, but 
I do think that it's going to be a very close matchup. And I think that this one is going to be a little bit closer than many people are anticipating as well with Kansas versus Villanova. With Kansas, I expect them to get the job done. I expect them to be able to make the national title game. But I think that a lot of people are burying Villanova because Justin Moore is out of the fold. And I feel like the blueprint for Villanova was really set last year when they played without Colin Gillespie in the NCAA tournament. They allowed in those three games that they played without him, 61, 62, and 63 points. They played at a tempo in those three games, of which would have been the lowest in college basketball in terms of possessions per game among any team that wanted to play in college basketball last two years. So they slowed it down to a crawl. I fully expect Jay Wright to do the same, and Jay Wright has a full week to prepare without Justin Moore. I think that he's going to dial up something good. I do think that having Remy Martin, O'Shea Ubaji out there in the backcourt, along with the big sound low, going to be a little bit too much for Villanova to handle, but I think the Villanova is going to be able to keep it close. I fully expect like a four to five point game in this one. Yeah, if you're a Kansas fan or, or supporting Kansas in this game, it's going to be a very annoying game <laughs> because the way I see this playing out is that Kansas is in relative control, but Villanova is going to grind the game to the pace, as you mentioned, and not let the game get out of hand. I see this being a Kansas lead that fluctuates between two and eight points for you know, maybe 30 of those minutes. The entirety of the game is Villanova hanging around. I just don't know if without more, they can make that final push and get over the hump. And even if they take a lead, be able to hold it. This is not a deep Villanova team. This is not a Villanova team that has a lot of offensive options. They go about six deep. Justin Moore, for lack of a better term, has been their best playmaker, has been their guy who can create shots off the bounce, been their best defender. Gillespie has been awesome. He won Big East Player of the Year again. You know, he's, he's certainly a phenomenal player in his own right. But Moore, to me, is the difference maker that took Villanova from being a really good team to being a Final Four caliber team. They can certainly hang with Kansas without him, but there's going to become a point in the game where they need him or guys to make plays on multiple possessions late in the game. And without him, I don't think Villanova has that next man up who can do that. I agree with you there. I think that it's going to be tough for Villanova if they get into even a morsel of foul trouble. That is something that you really do fear with them. And for Villanova, honestly, if there is quite a few fouls in this game, it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world as long as they're getting free throws out of them because Villanova, top free throw team in all of college basketball with regards to shooting percentage. They shoot as a collective 83% of the line. And Justin Moore, ironically enough, was their worst free throw shooter at like 74%, which that shows you just how terrific they are at the line. But I do think that it's going to be a case in which things are going to be very close throughout. I think that in the end, Kansas is able to pull it out, get to the national title game. So I am in lockstep with you, Brian. And Brian, we are both in lockstep in that we're going to be covering everything that we're getting this college basketball offseason as well. You gentlemen over there at Heat Check CBB, you guys love you guys eat, you guys breathe college basketball. You guys do an amazing job. And I know you do a great job with your own podcast, the Hope and Rolf podcast, which you're able to find wherever you get this podcast. So love the good people at home. Know it's all on tap for you for the rest of the college basketball regular season and into the offseason. And how people can follow along on social media and other platforms. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at BRALF33. Uh, it's B-R-A-U-F-33 over on at HeatCheckCBB, HeatCheckCBB.com as well. Headed out to New Orleans this week. We'll be at the Final Four covering those games in person, which I'm incredibly excited about. So that'll be a lot of fun. We'll also, we also have our way too early top 25 coming out this week for next season. I'll spoil it maybe a little bit, but there's an SEC team that's probably going to be number one in our rankings. That is not Kentucky going into next season. And there's a non-power conference team probably going to be number two. 
already got our eye towards next year, but we got that coming down the pipe along with all the Final Four coverage you possibly want up on HeatCheckCBB.com. Very interesting that St. Peter's has gained so much respect from HeatCheckCBB yeah. <laughs> that they're going to be number two. Nah, I'm kidding, of course. I, I'm pretty sure it's not St. Peter's is going to be number two, but with that said, I know that the gentlemen over there at HeatCheckCBB, they're doing a good job of being able to dial things up. It's going to be amazing to take a look at that list and just all the work that Brian and everyone else over there is going to be cranking out this final week of the college basketball regular season and into the offseason as well as we transition to the 2022-23 season. And it is always a pleasure to get Brian on the podcast. So big thanks to Brian Roth for joining me right here on Coast to Coast Hoops. Now part of the Visa family of podcasts and coming in next, going to summarize everything that we wound up seeing with regards to some transfers and some coaching hires that we got in college basketball Monday and then give you guys picks and analysis for both NIT games that we've got on this college basketball Tuesday as we hit some bank shots. Here in lovely Las Vegas for Coast to Coast Hoops with myself, Greg Hoops Spears, and now part of the Beeson family podcast. And Brian Rolfe does an absolutely amazing job just taking a look at the game of college basketball. He and everyone else over there at He Check CBB, they do a great job of taking a look at this all year long. It's not just one of these cases in which they get geared up in February through April or anything like that. These guys are going to be tracking the transfer portal as you wound up just hearing all these coaching moves. Brian. He's always tracking everything that we wind up seeing. So a big thanks to him for joining me in the last segment. Now it is that time of the podcast. And I do give you picks and analysis on both games on the betting board as we had some bank shots. But I'll first get you guys caught up on what we wind up seeing in the transfer portal as well as we wind up seeing some very big moves as an Ohio Valley Conference Player of the Year wound up entering in the transfer portal. That'd be KJ Williams, a guy that stands six foot ten. He's able to pop some threes. This is very big, and we saw a lot of notable names enter into the transfer portal. We were talking to Brian about what we wound up seeing with Andre Corbello, but a gentleman like Williams, who's six foot ten, and got to figure that he might wind up testing the NBA draft for waters a little bit. I don't think that he'd be getting picked up or anything like that, but I could see him winding up trying to take that route as well. But I mean, you just take a look at what he was able to do for a Murray State team that got ranked in the top 25, 18 points, eight and a half boards, steal and a half at six foot ten, being able to shoot about 33% from three. Trust me, there's a lot of teams that would love to have his services. And with Murray State winding up losing Ryan McMahon to the SEC with regards to their head coach, that certainly does put this program behind the eight ball a little bit. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Sean McNeil as well. A 12 point per game score in his two years at West Virginia was one of the best sharpshooters that they wound up having. So he is going to be out there for a West Virginia team that let's call it what it is, was a little bit of a brutal year for them. And when it comes to a team out there in the MAC in Ohio, it's been a relatively solid year for them, but they wind up having a gentleman in Ben Vanderplas wind up entering into the transfer portal. Kid from Rip in Wisconsin, and whoever winds up picking him up, I think is going to be able to get a good gentleman. 14.5 points, 7 boards, 3 assists as a six foot eight combo player. Shoots 34% from 3-point range. He's going to be using his COVID year to come back and be able to give a little bit of something to wherever he winds up transferring to, so that is certainly of note, along with the fact that Buffalo, they wind up having David Skogman wind up entering into the transfer portal. Buffalo, certainly not a team that has necessarily been overly stout with regards to their defense, but he was a guy that was able to give you right around seven points, five rebounds, was a little bit of a rim protector for a team that didn't have a lot of rim protection, so that is going to be setting them back a little bit as well. Going outside the transfer portal and taking a look at a big-time recruit that wound up falling on Monday as well. How about 
Arkansas getting their third McDonald's All-American of the 2022 recruiting class. Top 20 senior Anthony Black announced on Monday that he is going to be heading to Arkansas. He's a 6'7 combo player among ESPN's top 100. Number 9 rated small forward in the class. A guy that's able to pop threes. A guy that's able to dole out the ball. Give you a couple rebounds. Good on defense. This is exactly the type of player that Arkansas looks to recruit. Eric Musselman has done a great job of being able to find names in the portal. And you got to feel like Arkansas is going to be active there as well. But another Big time get that we wound up seeing going to Arkansas. So they are certainly here to say if you're taking a look at other guys that wound up coming in from the transfer portal as well as that was the main piece of recruiting news that we wound up seeing. You wound up seeing a pair of guys from Ole Miss that wound up entering into the transfer portal. Austin Crowley was a part of the backcourt for Ole Miss, a guy that was able to give you right around five points per contest. He enters into the transfer portal along with Luis Rodriguez. And I do think that Luis Rodriguez is really the biggest of the names because it's not like he was necessarily a dynamic score for this Ole Miss team. But with that said, he's a guy that was able to give you right around six and a half points per game and was a little bit of that glue guy for this team. Five and a half rebounds as a six foot six combo player. Two assists per game, was able to shoot about 30% from three-point range. Nothing great, but at the same time, was able to give you a little bit. Meanwhile, you've got a guy in Crowley that he was just very up and down in his short time in which he wound up playing at Ole Miss, a guy that was able to give you two and a half assists per game. And this year, shot 35% from three first years, shot more like 25% from distance, was utilized in a few different ways, was able to come on a little bit more towards the end of the year with regards to his scoring, six foot five, a little bit of a joker player. So it's going to be very fascinating to see what winds up happening with him. Trey Jackson, who wound up averaging about four points per contest this past year at Iowa State, he is going to be entering in the transfer portal as well. He was a part Part of that defense that was just so good for Iowa State. Cyclones, they were a top 25 team with regards to points allowed on a per possession basis. Jackson, a guy that really was utilized in a little bit more of a pop a couple threes and be a plus defender sort of role during the 2020-21 season when Iowa State was really terrible. Averaged more like five points per contest. Didn't necessarily shoot it well from three. Was a little bit more selective with his three-point shooting this year. Shot right around 35.5% from distance. So that's a little bit of a loss. So he is going to be in the transfer portal. Long Sharif O'Neal. He just could never really find his footing at either UCLA or LSU this past year. Wound up averaging three points per contest. There were times in which he was able to get a couple minutes, score a couple points. Has certainly some upside. If he winds up going down to a mid-major, I think that he would be able to absolutely tear it up. But I think that the Elias Amo O'Neal has hurt him a little bit because he's just, we're going to call it what it is, not his father in Shaquille O'Neal. So I feel like that has actually had a little bit of a detriment on him. We shouldn't be setting unrealistic expectations for him. You also wind up having G&I Hunt, who only wound up playing nine games a season for Oregon State, entering into the transfer portal. When Oregon State wound up being able to make their run to the Elite Eight, I'm not going to say that he was like a super massive cog for them or anything like that, but he was a guy that in that game against Houston in the Elite Eight wound up playing 24 minutes. He wound up having seven points. A guy that could come in off the bench, shot 37% from three as a six foot four combo player. He could certainly be a cog for someone. So going to be fascinating to see what winds up happening for him moving forward. We've seen a couple guys enter into the NBA draft as well. RJ Cole has done so. Guy that at UConn averaged four assists, 16 points, a little bit over a steal per contest. Now a lot of these guys, they are keeping their eligibility open like Josh Oduru, 17 and a half points per game at George Mason this year. A six foot nine combo player that's able to pop threes is able to give you between seven and eight rebounds per game. So going to be very fascinating to see what happens there because with guys like a Cole, someone like a Josh Oduru, 
Oduru if they wind up saying, you know what, I'm not liking what I'm hearing with regards to the NBA draft process. They could wind up pulling out their name and they wind up coming back to school and typically when they wind up coming back to school that means that they enter into the transfer portal so that means that in months like July and August you wind up having a bad dash to be able to try to bring these guys in so that is going to cause for a lot of hoopla this college basketball offseason. One name that has already been secured, though, we saw Sharif O'Neal decide that he's going to go away from LSU, and LSU is certainly a team that's in a little bit of transition right now. Kendall Coleman, who was over there at Northwestern State, he has decided that he is going to be going to LSU. Average 15.5 points, 9 rebounds per game at a lower level. Northwestern State, the Demons of the Southland Conference. A guy that doesn't necessarily have ideal size, but someone that should be able to come in, should be able to give this team a lot of athleticism, and a guy that I felt like would have fit well with this LSU team this season. What we're going to be seeing out of LSU this 2022-23 season. I feel like it's anyone's guess at this point. We want to see how the transfer winds up being able to shape out because obviously Will Wade winds up getting canned days before the NCAA tournament. But you take a look at Coleman. He wound up having 12 plus rebounds before the team's last five games, including 18 points and 20 rebounds in the last regular season game of the season against Southeast Louisiana. Guy that's able to give you a block and a seal per game. Six foot eight, 220 pound. Little bit of a versatile player wound up playing two seasons at Northwestern State. So that is a very good get for LSU. Whoever winds up getting Francisco Farabella, I think, is going to be getting a solid get as well. A guy that averaged four and a half points per game at TCU. Injuries really wound up derailing him. If he would have been able to stay out there on the court a little bit longer, I feel like he's a guy that really could have taken a little bit more hold with this offense because you just take a look at his freshman year, 2019-20 season. He was able to shoot about 41% from three-point range in limited time last season. Shot 45% from three this year. Four and a half points, two and a half rebounds, 38.5% three-point shooter. His usage was just a little bit selective because he's not necessarily the world's greatest defender, a guy that didn't wind up giving TCU as good of an effort on that side of the ball as so many of the other guys that wound up fitting in the system, but a guy that could certainly be a good sharpshooter, so I think that he's going to be certainly worth noting. We were talking about it a little bit earlier with our good friend Brian Roth, the fact that John McNeil's in the transfer portal, a guy that was able to average 12 points per contest last season at West Virginia. He's going to be one of the best peer shooters that's going to be out they're on the market, so a team that is in need of a guy that's able to give you a couple threes, maybe as a six-man role, perhaps as a starter, he should be able to come in and do a solid job there. Sage Tolbert, who averaged four rebounds per game at Temple, he has decided to enter into the transfer portal. This is someone that wanted to begin his career at Southeast Missouri State, wanted to play two seasons over there. Not a guy that's necessarily going to be able to stretch the floor, but a guy that is able to lend you a six foot ten, two 210-pound frame. It does a good job be able to get those boards. Has never necessarily been a prolific score. Southeast Missouri State is two years there at six and a half points and nine and a half points per contest. Always has been a good rebounder, so going to be very fascinating to see where his landing spot is. Ben Vanderplas, we wound up talking about a little bit earlier, so we're all good there. Tristan Newton, he is going to be of fascination as well because with Newton, he was playing at East Carolina this year, a team that on offense, to say that they were up and down, I think would be very fair to say, but a guy that was able to average 17 and a half points five assists, 4.8 rebounds per game. Now, the three-point shooting really came and went, and he had some of the most demonstrative splits that you're going to find in all of college basketball. He wound up taking right around four and a half threes per game. At home, shot 39.5% from three. Away from home, he wound up shooting 22% from distance, but a guy that rode and neutral court slash road games shot right around 87.5% at the free throw line, was always able to give you some good production there. Did turn the ball over three and a half times per game, so he's a little bit of a ball nominate guy, but he's six foot five and able to do all of this, so that is going to be very much something that you want to take a look at. 
Noah Tates, who wound up being at Sanford last year, was able to give you four and a half points per contest. He has decided to enter into the transfer portal, a guy that just really couldn't find his footing with a Sanford team that it's just year in and year out and very disappointing for them. A gentleman that actually comes from Las Vegas, shot 43% from three, is a six foot five, come in off the bench, give you a little bit of production sort of guy. So it's going to be interesting if you wind up having a mid-major that's looking for a little bit of outside shooting. I think that he could actually be absolutely terrific with that side of things. And we did wind up seeing a lot of guys from the Atlantic 10 wind up entering into the transfer portal. Both of the Mitchell brothers in Mackay and Mikel Mitchell have decided to enter into the transfer portal. You got to figure that these guys are going to be a package deal. We could wind up seeing something like we wound up seeing with the Hauser brothers at Marquette a few years ago. But you do take a look at both of the Mitchells and both of these guys are going to be able to bring something to the table. With Mikel Mitchell, he was able to last season at Rhode Island give you 10.5 points, 5.5 boards, 2.4 blocks per contest. Now his brother Mackay, not necessarily as much of a shot blocker, but a relatively similar scorer. Both of these guys did wind up giving you right around 9 to 10.5 points per game with Mackay. 9.9 points, 7.5 rebounds, a steal, a block and a half per contest. A little bit of a better 3-point shooter, more around 31% from 3-point range. So both of these guys do bring a little bit of something to the table, but got to figure that they're going to be a bit of a package deal. You did wind up seeing Michael Jones, who wound up averaging 12 points per game at Davidson last year, winding up entering into the transfer portal. We saw everything that Davidson was able to do, one of the best three-point shooting teams in all of college basketball, and Jones was a big part of that. Guy that shot 42% from three-point range. He really took some strides forward after he averaged right around five to five and a half points per game his first two seasons on campus. Away from home, shot 48.5% from three-point range, with 12.5 points per contest, 6'5 combo player. So he is going to be coveted out there in the transfer portal market, along with Jackie Johnson, who was on a Duquesne team that they tried to bring in a bunch of transfers. It just did not wind up going well for Keith Dambrot. You take a look at Johnson, and it's going to be intriguing to see what he winds up bringing to a new team because he was someone that wound up seeing a lot of minutes right away for Duquesne. He was a true freshman that shot 37.5% from three, 9.5 points. I think that he's got a lot of upside and showed that towards back half of the season. Double figures in each of the last four games. A guy that only turned the ball over one and a half times per game. Didn't necessarily have the ball in his hands a ton, which at five foot eleven, you gotta figure that he needs to work on his ball handling a little bit, but certainly someone that I think could be able to be very productive for a team moving forward. Wound up seeing a couple guys from the Big Ten decide to enter in the transfer portal as well. Parker Stewart, who shot right around 40% from three for Indiana, six and a half points per contest, but also shot 65% the free line when he was at UT Martin a few years ago. Was a guy that led the team in scoring when was a high 33-point shooter there, so a guy that can clearly give you offense, but also doesn't necessarily do a great job other than shoot, so it's going to be intriguing to see where he winds going. Isaiah Thompson, who was at Purdue, wound up averaging 4.2 points per contest for a Purdue team that they really thinned out their rotation towards back half of the season. I don't necessarily think that that was a good thing. He has decided that he is going to be entering in the transfer portal because you take a look at a guy in Thompson. He wound up seeing 13 minutes or fewer in each of the team's final five games. He, in that time, fan wound up having a combined 12 points per game. He shot 42.5% from three. Not necessarily a guy with a ton of size, but he wound up actually seeing a dip in his minutes in every single year that he was on campus for Purdue. That is not a good way to be able to keep guys around, especially if you're a team like Purdue that you don't bring in a lot of transfers. So that was a little bit of a misstep, in my opinion, on Matt Painter. So now they're not going to have him in the fold. You've got Devin Carter, who wound up playing last season at South Carolina. A guy that was able to give you right around nine points per contest. He has decided that he is going to be entering in the transfer portal as well. A guy in Carter that's able to give you four rebounds per game. Once again, liability with regards to three-point shooting at 
as darn near everyone on South Carolina was, as well as Jermaine Cousinard from South Carolina, also in the transfer portal, a guy that averaged 11 points, three assists, but also averaged right around three turnovers per game. Carter, he averaged a little bit over two turnovers per contest, despite not having the ball in his hands a ton as well, so going to be very intriguing to see what happens with South Carolina because they now have in the fold Paris Lamont. He winds up coming in from Chattanooga. Frank Martin, as we know, he wound up being let go of in the offseason. He's now going to be with the UMass Minutemen. So it's going to be a little bit of a changing of the guard there. And I mentioned it with Murray State a little bit earlier. KJ Williams entered us into the transfer portal. So does Justice Hill. You got to feel like a lot of these teams that they wind up seeing a change in head coach, they're going to be seeing a lot of this as Hill. He was absolutely tremendous for Murray State. 13 and a half points, five assists, shot 36% from three point range. He was someone that in the back half of the season really was able to step up as well. Now, did wind up having three plus turnovers in four out of the team's last five games, but at least three assists in every one of those contests. He wound up having 15 plus points in each of the final three games as well. So, Ohio Valley Conference final along with the two NCAA tournament games. So, he certainly was able to do a solid job there. And then you've got Isaiah Brockington, who is also. Someone that wanted declaring for the NBA draft. And he's going to be signing with an agent. He's as good as gone. A guy that was able to give you right around 17 points. Just under 8 rebounds per game. The best 3-point shooter for Iowa State. Cyclones really ran so much through him. So... We're going to be very fascinating to see what happens there. Kevin McCullough, 10 points, 5 rebounds per game at Texas Tech, has entered into the NBA draft as well. One of the best defenders, in my opinion, in all of college basketball. Just really a winner. But with that said, a guy that didn't necessarily have one thing that he wound up doing great. He was one of those guys in which he would just give you a little bit of something on any given night. He is going to be maintaining his eligibility, though, and got to feel like if he does wind up deciding to not stay in the NBA draft, and I'll be surprised if he does, that he would be very much inclined to come back to Texas Tech. So we wound up seeing a lot of moves with regards to college basketball, with regards to the transfer portal, and then we did wind up seeing one big coaching hire as well. SMU, they decided that they were going to be making a little bit of a coaching change as well after Tim Jankovic wound up stepping down, and they wound up hiring on Rob Lanier. He's actually a relation of Bob Lanier, who wound up making the Hall of Fame in the NBA guy that was just absolutely tremendous. He actually played for the Milwaukee Bucks for a little bit of time as well, but his cousin, Rob Lanier, was someone that a few years ago, he was the coach at Siena, wound up flailing out there. From there, he wound up bouncing around. He wound up being an assistant at many different programs, Virginia, Tennessee, took over Georgia State, and in three years at Georgia State, did a solid job there, going 53-30. and 30. They were the Sun Belt champions this year after dealing with a lot of COVID-19 issues. They were a team that, prior to him getting there, really embraced the three ball. They embraced a little bit more defense while he was there as well. So, an SMU team that they're a little bit more of an up-tempo team, I would not be surprised if they wind up slowing it down a little bit more. So, that's what we wound up seeing in offseason news in college basketball on Monday. Now, let's take a look at the two games that we've got on the betting board for this college basketball Tuesdays. I give you picks and analysis of both NIT games as we hit some bank shots. Most financial establishments close at a certain time, but not here. It is time for a side and total on every game on today's betting board bank shots. Do you note that as per usual, any changes that are made to these plays will be listed up on my Twitter feed at GUnit underscore 81. And we're going to be going with the early game first, and then we're going to be going with the late game after that as 
We are going to be starting off with 647, 648 on the betting board, and this is going to be the DK Nation pick, as you've got the Bonnies of St. Bonaventure, and they are going to be taking on Xavier. The X-Men are finding themselves a one and a half point underdog. Totals anywhere between 140 and 140 and a half, and with the Bonnies, I did wind up setting them as a two and a half point favorite. The DK Nation pick is actually going to be on the total, though. I set this total at a 134 and a half, and this is one that opened up at a 142, so I fully agree with the move on the under. I am fully on board with that, because this is a St. Bonaventure team that they are one of the slowest teams in all of college basketball. They don't necessarily have a deep rotation. They wind up really only going five men deep. You've got one starter that averages fewer than 37 minutes per game, and that'd be Oshun Oshuni, who's been really doing a great job down low for this St. Bonaventure team. Right around 11.5 points, 7.5 rebounds, darn near three blocks per contest. He's in the top 10 in all of college basketball with 2.9 blocks per contest. 283rd in the country is what the Bonnies are with regards to possessions per game. Xavier's been playing a little bit more up-tempo, but they're only 106th in the country with regards to points scored on a per-possession basis. Duran's 60th in terms of three-point shooting percentage, making 30.9% of their outside shots in a road and neutral court environment. And with Xavier, they're going to be short-handed without Paul Scruggs. Now, the good news is, if Xavier is up due with about 30 seconds remaining, he's not going to give an intentional foul, so you don't have to worry about that, but he is a guy that wanted to give the team for the year 11.5 points, 4 assists, 1.5 seals per contest, so that means that you're really going to be trusting into a lot of Jack Nunch. Nunch has been able to do a nice job for Xavier this year, 13.5 points, 7.5 boards, and Zach Fremantle down low. It's not been what he was last season, but he's been able to pick it up a tad ever since coming back from an offseason injury. 10.5 points, 5.5 rebounds per game, but I really do question what you're going to be able to get out of Nate Johnson in this spot as well. In a home environment, has been shooting right around 40% from 3-point range. Road in neutral court games, more around 34 to 35% from 3-point range, but a combined 5 rebounds in the last 3 contests has been able to pick it up a little bit with his scoring, but has been banged up overall for the year. 10.5 points per contest. Meanwhile, you take a look at what you're able to get out of the Bonnie's backcourt and Jalen Attaway I think is going to be the best guard in this game. 15.5 points, 6 boards, a steal per game, shooting 39% from 3-point range. Bonnie's only shoot 31.8% from 3-point range, but 74.7% at the free line. St. Bonaventure, 10.5 turnovers per game, and Xavier, they only shoot right around 70% at the free line. They themselves don't turn the ball over a ton. You've got a Xavier team that they do for 7.3 steals per contest, but I do think that this is going to be a case in which Oshun Oshuni is going to be able to do a solid job down low. I don't think that there's going to be too many second chances for either of these teams. And I think that the Bonnies wind up getting their tempo, especially with Xavier, having to likely slow down a little bit with having Mr. Paul Scruggs out of the fold. That means that Adam Kunkel is going to have the ball in his hands a little bit more, not necessarily the world's greatest at being able to dole off the ball. And I'm just out on Dewan Odom. A guy that's able to give you six points, a little bit over two assists per game. Just feels like he's a little bit rudderless with it in general. Scored four points or fewer in three out of the last four contests. He has had five turnovers and seven assists in the last two games of the NIT as well. So the DK Nation pick is going to be the underset at a 134 and a half. And with St. Bonaventure, they're a team that's out there in the great state of New York. They're playing this game at Madison Square Garden. Got to feel like this is going to be a little bit more meaningful to them than a Xavier team that they wound up canning their coach in the offseason as well. So I did wind up saying this line at 2.5. We know that John Miller is going to be taking over Xavier, but he's not going to be coaching them in this game. It's an interim coaching regime, a little bit of a lame duck interim coaching regime. So I'm looking at the under with the DK Nation pick. And since St. Bonaventure is a 2.5 point favorite, so one late here. And we wrap things up with 649, 650 on the betting board. You've got Texas A&M and Washington State. Washington State, anywhere between a one and a half and a two point underdog. Your total on this game is between 133 and 133 and a half. 
I set Texas A&M as a one half point favorite, so we're seeing some twos pop up. I'm going to be willing to take a two or more than that if we wind up getting it with Washington State. Washington State has been doing a great job on defense, top 35 in the country with regards to points allowed on a per possession basis. You take a look at Texas A&M, and they're now clocking in at the top 50. And both of these teams do a great job of being able to turn the other over. Washington State, they're in the top 45 with regards to turnovers forced on a per possession basis. Texas A&M, they do rank in the top 20 in momentum, certainly on the side of Texas A&M. They wind up making the SEC title game. They're a team in which a hole is greater than some of its parts. As neither of these teams aren't necessarily dominant on the glass, but I do like what you're able to get out of Henry Coleman III and Tyrese Radford. I combined 22 points a little bit over 12 rebounds per game. Bradford actually shoots 42% from three-point range. You've got a Texas A&M team that among your top six scorers are going to be active in this game because they've been without Marcus Williams for quite a while. He's been dealing with some off-the-court things, but in terms of your top six scores, they're going to be active. Five of them give you at least 1.2 steals per contest. That's going to be beneficial. Now, Texas A&M is a team that they turn the ball over 13 and a half times per game. But Washington State, they're more around 11 and a half to 12 turnovers per game. So they do a little bit of a better job of locking down with that regard. And you take a look at both of these three-point shooting defenses, and I think that it's intriguing in that Washington State, in a road and neutral court environment, opponents shoot just 30.2% from three-point range on them. That is in the top 30 in all of college basketball, so they've been able to do a very solid job there. Texas A&M, they're a team that is coached by Buzz Williams, a guy that really does preach some solid defense, and with regards to opponents' three-point shooting percentage, you're clocking in more on 54th, but in a road and neutral court environment, 29.8%. That is more in the top 25 of all of college basketball. So both of these teams, I think, are going to be able to do a good job of being able to guard the arc, and Michael Flowers is probably going to be the best outside shooter when it comes to this game. A guy that, for Washington State, has really been able to go into takeover mode in the last 10 games, has been averaging right around 17 points per contest overall for the year. 14.5 points, 3.5 assists, ACO per game shooting for the season, 37.5% from three-point range. When he's away from home, he actually shoots 40% from three at home. He's been shooting sub-35%. I don't know how that works, but it does. But you've also got Tyrell Ghost Roberts. He and Flowers combined to shoot just below 90% the free line. Tyrell Ghost Roberts right around 34.5% three-point shooter, 11.5 points per game. But you don't necessarily have a ton down low because the inconsistent play of Andre Yagmovsky has not necessarily been his fault, but you just take a look at the minutes allotment for him, and it's been intriguing. In the last five games, 32, 27, 8, 12, and 9. You just don't know what you're going to be able to get out of him night in and night out. And whenever Yakmovsky, the gentleman from North Macedonia, is in there, I like him. You've also got Mohamed Gabe, 7.5 points, right around 5 rebounds per game. Able to stretch the floor, doesn't necessarily shoot threes great. Only about 28% from three overall, but he's able to give you a little bit of something. Effie Obadiji is able to give you 8.6 rebounds per game, but I do think that Texas A&M is going to be able to do a relatively solid job on the glass. But what is going to keep Washington State live in this game, the fact that they shoot 74 4.5% at the free line. Meanwhile, Texas A&M, this is a bunch of, they shoot more around 69.5% at the free line. I do think that Washington State is going to be able to keep this game very close. I favor Texas A&M very, very slightly in this game, but I do think that this is a relative pick contest. Washington State has been able to pick things up as well. Both of these teams have been able to play some of their best basketball down the stretch, and both of these teams have been able to play some of their best basketball because they have been doing an absolutely sensational job on defense, especially you take a look at what Texas A&M was able to do to Wake Forest a couple days ago, holding them down to 52 points, and really for the Texas A&M team, they have given up now 65 points or fewer in every one of their games ever since that overtime game that they wound up playing against Florida in the SEC tournament. If you look ever since... 
the 5th of March. This is a team that they have now played in that time span, I believe, nine games, and they have given up more than 65 points just once, and that was that overtime game that I mentioned against Florida. Meanwhile, you take a look at Washington State, another team that has really been able to bear down on defense in the NIT. They have given up 63 points or fewer in every one of these contests, and it's a bunch that they've now given up 67 points or fewer in all but two of their games this month. So, semi-total of 132.5. I'm diving under. Keep in mind, when it comes to Madison Square Garden, college teams. They always just seem to crater with regards to their three-point shooting, so I think that that helps out the under a little bit more. And with Texas A&M, something as one and a half point favorite, so at even one and a half, I'd be willing to take Washington State, but I'm looking to target a two-plus here with the Cougars, and that will wrap things up for the Tuesday edition of Coast to Coast Hoops, now part of the Beeson Family Podcast. Big thanks to Brian Roth of HXABB for joining me in the last segment. If you like what you're hearing from this fine podcast, Coast to Coast Hoops, you're able to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Citra, and TuneIn. If you've got a question, comment, segment idea, what have you for this podcast, you'll have one of two ways to be able to fire those in. First one is my Twitter timeline at GUNIT underscore D1. Keep in mind, letters EM. Maybe it does not matter, so as per usual, please do send these into the timeline any other way. Sign an Apple Podcast review. If you rate this podcast five stars, it is very much appreciated. From there, you're able to find whatever you'd like to hear on this podcast. Five that five star review. Coming at you guys every single day throughout the college basketball season, and that means I'm coming at you once again tomorrow. Thank you so much for tuning in.